Are there no surprises? Sarah mumbles as she reaches for the phone. It's her sister. Sarah was expecting to hear from her, to be informed of some emergency, some unexpected reason why her sister now needs money to make it home for the holidays. Sarah had offered to buy her sister's ticket months ago, but her sister refused. She had promised this time it would be different. This time she would have her act together, she'd save up. Sarah simply says she'll book the ticket and looks forward to seeing her at mom and dad's. As Sarah drags out her suitcase, a distinct sense of dread sweeps through her. Sarah had thought that moving out to Portland would somehow remedy her relationship with her family. But it's been seven years, and her success as a graphic designer has only seemed to make her family more dependent on her. While Sarah doesn't leave for another week, she starts neatly stacking cardigans and sweatpants into her bag. With each garment, a new scenario pops into Sarah's head. Maybe if I get laid off, they won't expect so much of me. Maybe if I'm finally married, they'll realize I'm a grown woman. Maybe if I move abroad, I... Sarah stops herself. She starts a round of yoga breathing exercises. Sarah was the sane one in her family. She knew she had to pull herself together and just actually act like it. Sarah goes to the living room to collect a few books for the flight. A friend had just lent her a stack. She grabs a novel that she'd been meaning to read for years. And there was an old book by Soren Kierkegaard. That seemed random. She had discovered Kierkegaard while taking a philosophy class in university. Sarah climbs into her oversized chair with her knees to her chest and a throw draped across her. She, books, she looks through the book, flipping aimlessly at first. And then a short story called The King and the Maiden suddenly pulls her in. The story is about a king who's absolutely taken with his humble maiden. The king knew if he pursued her with all of his displays of wealth and power, the maiden would be obligated to marry him, and he'd, he'd never know if she really loved him. So the king disguises himself as a beggar and goes out to properly win over his maiden. Sarah notices that she's tearing up. Then the little streams of tears turn into an ocean. It had been so long since she had just let herself cry. Her sister's call made her realize how, how trapped she's felt. Yes, she has tr felt trapped for years. She's worked so hard not to rely on anyone, to be in control. Yet her own success has put more expectations on her, more distance between her and her family. Come to think of it, between her and everyone else. Sarah has been like the king before he shook off his power and wealth. But, oh, for once, couldn't she just be like the maiden? Tears drench her cheeks. Sarah realizes how much she longs to be pursued, how much she aches to be surprised by love. and broken stones will turn to dust just like our bones it's words that hurt the most now isn't it are you sad inside are you home alone 
If I could just pick up the phone, maybe you could see a better day. You won't waste away under my watchful eye because I'm your hero and you're gonna break my fall when the spinning starts the colors bleed together was it ever there at all and have I lost my way the path of least resistance is catching up
Six years ago, I was sitting in the dining room of somebody I had met a few minutes before in Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam. And as I looked in my soup, there was something staring back at me. It was one of these moments where it felt completely foreign. And and to back up, I had that summer spent uh, five weeks traveling through Europe on business, had come back for five days, and then flown to Hong Kong, gone through mainland China, and now I'm in Vietnam. And in Vietnam, I was meeting with a leader of the house church movement, and the church is illegal in Vietnam. And so I felt like I was in a James Bond movie or the Bourne movie. I'm whipping through the streets in the middle of the night, and we're changing cars here and changing there, and suddenly I'm in the dining room of this person I'd never met before. And did I mention there's something staring at me out of my soup? And I started to, I, you know, I didn't quite know what to do. I'm trying to keep up the conversation. I'm, I'm drinking the soup, and I'm trying to avoid the black thing in the middle that's staring at me. And as it got lower, I saw a mouth, and I thought, there's an alligator in my soup, a baby alligator. But it wasn't, of course. It was a baby chicken. Seriously, the whole baby chicken was sitting in my soup and it was black because the soup was black and it had changed its skin color and made it sort of rough and there was the beak in its head. And then my host showed me what to do with the chicken. He picked it up and he, hold your stomachs, began gnawing on the head. And I'd traveled a lot and I'd always been told that when you're in a host country, you know, you sort of buck up and you do what they do. However, I had traveled a lot and I had decided I was no longer doing that. (laughs) I didn't eat uncooked bacon in Russia and I wasn't eating the chicken's head. It was a moment where I felt like I was totally out of my own, completely foreign. Seriously, completely foreign moment for me. And at that moment, we began a discussion, which took my eyes off of the soup, but also reminded me that it wasn't all that foreign situation after all because the man started to talk to me about his family and about his kids and about his hopes and his dreams for himself and for his country, about what God had done in his heart some years before and why he had a passion for his church to change the city. And in a few moments, it was no longer just some random house at Vietnam with a bizarre soup in front of me. It was a normal touch point of humanity. It's what I found everywhere I've, I've traveled. Once you get past the externals of the difference in culture, people have the same issues, the same hopes, the same dreams. I sat one night with a geophysicist in uh, communist Czechoslovakia and the same hopes, the same dreams. I sat in a very small hut with someone in Uganda and the same hopes and the same dreams. I drove through the streets of Port-au-Prince, Haiti, the very worst, um, most impoverished city I've ever been at. And When I talk to people, the same hopes, the same dreams. Culture changes, the externals change, the human heart doesn't. I think what you'll find as we go through this series in the book of Micah, that sure, it seems obscure and very different from our lives, 2,700 years ago, written to an ancient people, and yet what you'll find is that in the midst of it, I think, that God is speaking to the same issues, the same hopes, the same dreams, that all of us have. As Kurt said in this uh, talk, and in this series, we've labeled each one of them with the word, and the word for this one is sovereign. And here's what's happening in the midst of the the story I'm about to tell you. 
this is the ancient Israelites, and, and at this time in the 7th century B.C., what had happened was the people who had had incredible things done for them had now become a, a calloused people, that the society, not much unlike what we often see in our own time, everybody was out for themselves. And the poor were crushed, and the, the widow was ignored, and people were taken advantage of, and rules were bent and twisted in order to everybody get what they wanted out of it. And then what made it worse, what made it really insidious in a place where justice did not reign, where mercy was no part of the culture. In the midst of all that, there was a veneer of religiosity and a thick veneer layered over the top of it, such that they went to church and they did their sacrifices and they made their offerings and they said all the right words, but their heart was distant. It had just become religion with no heart behind it. And in the midst of that, Micah comes and speaks. And I'm going to read to you just a couple of verses in the beginning of Micah. And this is what it says. In verses 2 and 3. Hear, O peoples, all of you, listen, O earth, and all who are in it, that the sovereign Lord may witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads the high places of the earth. Now, as I read this passage and I thought through this whole book, the question about the sovereignty of God, a God who looks over our life, was this. Does God judge the actions of our life? When bad things happen, they happen because, short sentence, they, we deserve it. How do we put together our consequences in a God who is moral and holy and looks over our life? And and I thought about it, I thought there's two equal and opposite errors we can make in this issue of when bad things happen, what's God doing in the midst of it? And one error, one extreme is this. It's the view that when bad things happen, well, people got what they deserved. Is that what God is, is God is the, is the middle school vice principal who's calling people to his office. You wrote in your locker, that's detention. You pulled somebody's hair, that's detention. And, and all that happened is the, the middle school principal makes the consequences higher and higher depending on how many times you've done something wrong. And so, in this view, what God is doing is he is counting them up. He's like a nasty Santa Claus. He's counting them up. He's checking the list. And every time you do something, he's there right on top of it. You don't get away with stuff. And it was really interesting. In the, in, there's a story that Jesus tells. There's a story in Jesus' life where some of his disciples came up to him. And his, a tower had fallen over and killed some people. And so they came up, literally, and this is the question they asked. You can look it up. The, the question they ask is this. Jesus, we have, we're wondering, that tower that fell over, was it because the people sinned or their parents sinned? Which was it? We're just curious. You see, their framework was if bad things happen, well, people deserve it. Consequences come on people who do the wrong thing. Now, I, I'll just be honest with you. This may not be true of you, but if when I do something wrong, bad things are going to happen... I need to get my guard up, cause, and you should too, because towers are going to be falling everywhere. And I'm not sure you really want to be in the same room with me. Because if consequences come on our life, if God judges everything we do wrong and brings consequences on it, then towers are falling everywhere. And I would say this extreme view of God's sovereignty is quite honestly a scary view. And it's a scary view that doesn't really fit with the biblical picture of God. Now, the other equal and opposite extreme is the view that when we do something wrong, God either wrings his hands and, 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 or he just goes, ah, whatever, boys will be boys. 
no consequences at all. God is distant. He might be interested, but he's not doing anything. And so I either have a God who's got a ruler in his hand ready to smack my knuckles, or I have a, a God who's like, it's okay. I remember when I was little, I did the same sort of stuff. That's not the biblical view of God. The question we have to answer today is, where is God in the midst of the consequences of my life? And I want to specifically address it. Where is God when I screw up? How is he going to react? In verse 7 of Micah 1, God is reacting, by the way, to their situation. And this is what he says is going to happen. All her idols will be broken to pieces. All her temple gifts will be burned with fire. I will destroy all her images. Since she gathered her gifts from the wages of prostitutes, as the wages of prostitutes, they will again be used. It says that God will act. He will come down. And he will interact in the affairs of men. But what I find interesting about it is it doesn't say that God will come down and he's going to go through every single action they've done and he's going to smash them. It says, look, the problem is your heart. So I'm going to come down and I'm going to address the heart issue, which is your idols. That you rely on things that will forsake you. That you pursue things for which you long that will not fill gaps in your heart. That your heart has become hard and calloused. I'm not trying to correct your actions. I'm trying to reshape your heart. See, here is two truths. Number one, you will not get what you deserve in this life. You will not. God will not give you what you deserve. If you got what you deserved, it would be very, very scary. But number two, God is after you. But he's after you to change your heart. He is not the middle school principal. He's your father who loves you desperately. And so, in every moment of your life, in every circumstance, in every occasion, when things are done to us, when we screw up our own lives, he will be there. And he will engage for the explicit and strict purpose of reshaping our hearts. I was uh, talking to Kurt earlier this week, and we were talking about the whole issue of discipline and how does God engage in our lives. And he, and, and he says, and I'm going to loosely paraphrase what Kurt said, but he said, look, if, if, if you have a God that doesn't discipline you, then you really don't have a God. You have a life coach. You know, you have somebody who's just sort of patting you in the back and giving you, if you're a life coach, I don't mean that negatively. I really don't. But I'm assuming you're not going to discipline me. You know, if I, I've got a life coach, they're encouraging me. They're saying, way to go. And to be blunt, God cares about you more than that than to give you simple words of encouragement. His intention is to reshape your heart. I loved Tamara's story. I did. I love that story that she, that she wrote for that because to me it rings so true to the nature of God that in the midst of this person she wrote about, her, her suffering and her wondering in the course of her life, that God randomly, seemingly, brought things before her. Who randomly brought that story which reminded her of, of deep truth. This is my experience. The lowest point in my life, really, and I won't go into all the detail, but there was a point in my life that was really low. And it was low because I had become a Christian. I believed in God. I believed in Jesus. And I had endeavored to live a new way of life. And I was not. 
And for three or four years, I had been doing all sorts of things I ought not to have done. And I don't mean silly little things like, you know, I drank too much or something like that. My heart was barren, and it was hard, and it was calloused. And I had done so many things, and I had gone so far astray that I sat in my car, and I was driving, and I thought to myself, I've done too much. Surely God cannot receive me now. He did it once. He forgave me once. But now, knowing better and looking at the way I've lived, surely I have no hope in God now. And that moment was, have you ever had those moments? I mean, they're small. There might be this discrete little moment where it's like it's pitch black. And then through distraction or (laughs) denial or something, we move out of that moment. That moment was pitch black. Because I, I, I realized that my options had closed. I had come to believe in a God, and now that God was the Savior of my soul, and I had shut him out, and so there wasn't any hope left. I was certain it was done. From major turning point in my life, from that point over the next several months, there was an onslaught of grace. It was like everywhere I looked and everything I read and every conversation as I watched movies, as I listened to music, this message kept coming through that God was pursuing me and he had more for my life. That no, he was not content to simply let me live any way I wanted because he knew that would rip my soul apart. He was not content with that. And so he would not simply let me go that way. But I also realized he would not let me go. That he was insistent and persistent on changing my heart and making me alive. And what I found is through the course of my life is in my relationship with God, that has happened over and over again. I, I've told you this story, I think, about seven years ago where I sat in a room in the midst of a conference and somebody talking about how little they loved other people and had this searing moment where I realized, that's me. It's not that my actions aren't that great. It's not that I'm tired. It's not that people are irritating. The problem is me. I realized how desperately callous my heart was. And at the core of all of my issues, relationally or anywhere, were the fact that I really didn't love people. And and with everything within me, I wanted to avoid that. And you know what? I wanted a God, I did, I wanted a God who would say, ah, it's okay. I remember when I didn't love people either. You You know what I mean? I wanted somebody who would just let me off the hook. You know that feeling, right? The consequences have come down your head. You just want to be let off the hook. I just wanted to be let off the hook. I wanted that moment to pass, and it deepened. And over the next several years, God pursued me there. I wanted to be pursued elsewhere. He pursued me there. Why? Because God does not want religious people. He wants your heart. There's a verse in the end, or toward the end of the book of Micah, which is, to me, it's like this seminal verse which gets to the core of what God wants for our lives. And it's Micah 6, 8, and it says this. He, he's told you what is good. And what does God require of you? That you do justice and that you love mercy and that you walk humbly with your God. What's going on in the midst of your life when consequences happen? Well, lots of things, really. Let's not be simplistic. Lots of things. But among them is that. 
really the most important. There's really two stories to our life. The lower story is the dealing with the common issues that the struggles of humanity. The upper story is the work of God, the sovereign Lord, the one who sees your life, who is making your heart like that. And he won't relent. He's not willing for you just to be forgiven. He's not willing you to become religious. He's not willing for you to act a little better. His whole goal is to reshape your heart so that it becomes true, so that it becomes pure. So he will smash your idols. And he will allow consequences. I, I reiterate this. This is really, really important. You do not get what you deserve. I do not want you to think every time an act, something happens in your life, I'm just getting what I deserve. It is not it. God is not bringing consequences. Just like you screwed up, that's going to happen. God allows consequences to the extent that it reshapes our heart to that. And so always the question to ask, always, God, how do you want to change my heart through this? You know, when the economy collapses, there's all sorts of first story issues. Seriously. Like, how do we pay our bills and how do we get food in the table and how do I keep my family strong? And we have to address those issues. But the truth of the Bible is that there's a sovereign God who has us in his hands. And he will lead us through the first story issues, but more than that, he's reshaping our hearts. And so as you're wrestling through issues in your life and their practicalities of them, if we can get to that moment where we look up and say, God, what do you want to speak to me about here? You see, the, the people of Israel at that time, they were just like us. Distracted, overwhelmed, easily pulled aside to things that look pretty and smell nice and sound good. And God didn't look at them and go, I'm just wiping you out. Although it comes harsh and very straightforward, we'll see as we go along here that God is simply wooing people back. In the end of chapter 2, he looks at them and he says, I'm going to draw you back. I'm going to shepherd you as my sheep. I'm going to bring you back to myself. All the consequences for for the point of making their heart stronger, truer, more alive, more filled with mercy. And see, we often ask the wrong questions. When we mess up in our lives, we look for the escape route. We look for how do I get out of this? When we don't love somebody the way we should, we come up with the reasons why. Well, it was this and it was that, and I probably needed more sleep, which might be true. And I probably need them to be a better person, which may be true also. But the deeper question to ask is, God, why don't I love people? Why don't I love mercy? Not how do I do more merciful actions? Why don't I love mercy? Not why, aren't I, why, why didn't I do a just action there, but why aren't I a more just person? Why is humility so far from me, and why, God, do I not walk with you? It's in that space that God takes even the screw-ups that we've done. I mean, that song to me is just, it's, it's just so powerful. When the path of least resistance has caught me short again today. When we get to that place where we've done the action, the consequences have come, and so many things rage through our head. We hear all sorts of voices. 
You hear the voice of our parents. You hear the voice of our peers. And they're saying, yep, screwed up again. But then there's the voice of God, who sees more than anyone else does. Scary moment, I know. Who sees more than anyone else does. And is reaching into your life to make you alive. To change your heart, not your actions. To make you a person who is whole and beautiful. To make you into the creation that he has always sought for you to be. It is why he acts. It is what his involvement is in your life. It's the question to ask. Is God after you? Yes, he is. He's after you to change your heart, to make you alive. And he will pursue you. Let's pray. Our Father, would you take our time today and teach us? We hear so many voices. They, they scream in our ears. Would you allow us to hear your voice cutting through the din? That, yes, you will be engaged in our lives. At times, that will be painful, but you will engage and you will pursue. But the goal is pure and the goal is what we always wanted. For we are not people who are trying to be better, but we are people whose hearts are alive. And we are people who walk with you. I pray you teach us that and reach us even in the midst of this time today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.